I'm going to talk about the parable of the sower. And I need to start with some background. So the parable of the sower is the first of the kingdom parables. There are seven of them. And there are also seven pastoral letters that Paul writes during the apostolic era. And then there are seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. So each of those seven match. Parable of the Sowers matches the letter to the Ephesians, matches Revelation 2, the letter to the church at Ephesus from Yeshua. And the rest of them follow suit. I'm not going to go through all of those. I'm just sort of orienting you right now. Where he gives this parable is significant. He's in a boat. And what the boat says is, we are done talking to Israel, we are now going to the Gentiles. If you notice in the Old Testament, the metaphor is shepherds. So, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all shepherds. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. Shepherds is the metaphor in the Old Testament. Boats is the metaphor in the New Testament because the word is going out from Israel to the world. And it goes by boat. So the idea that Yeshua is in a boat when he gives this parable is an indicator that, okay, we're done talking to the Jews. We're now talking to the Gentiles. Now, as we read, for example, the Jeremiah passage and every other major prophet in the Bible, God has been through with Israel half a dozen times. Probably more than that. In other words, the idea that Yeshua at this point in his ministry is really done talking to Israel and is now talking to Gentiles is nothing new. Hence, this is not an excuse for replacement theology. Everybody know what replacement theology is? Replacement theology is the idea that God is done with Israel and he's turned to the Gentiles and Israel's been rejected. As Ralph used to say, there's a Hebrew word for that. It's called baloney. But the idea here is God in the prophets, when Israel gets out of line, does the same thing that Yeshua is doing here. Turns from them, talks to somebody else. So it's not an indication that they are done, rejected, and of course the fact that Israel is reconstituted as a nation gives a lie to that. Again, by way of background, the thing that has happened before this vignette is the Jews, the Pharisees, the scribes, the leadership of Judaism has ascribed the miracles and the casting out of demons that Yeshua has done to himself being possessed of a demon. And we have the business, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Once that's done, once they turn and look at him and basically what they're doing is rejecting him as a prophet. So when they say the things that he's doing are a function of Beelzebub, what they're saying is, you are not a legitimate prophet. We are not listening to you anymore. That's the message. And so when they give him that message, what he does is he turns from speaking to them, because what he's doing is he's calling Israel to repentance. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, right? When they reject that message, what he does is he then turns and he's now speaking not to them, he's speaking now to the world. Hence, in a boat. It's all tightly wound, very symbolic. 
And one of the things he does is he quotes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. And I will read that in its entirety. Chapter 6, 9. He said, he being God, said to the prophet Isaiah, Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So when Isaiah gets his commission, God is every bit as fed up with Israel as he is when he sends Yeshua. He sends Yeshua as a prophet. Yeshua tells him to repent. They ascribe everything to Satan. He says, adios, we're going to the Gentiles, which is exactly the same thing he said in Jeremiah, exactly the same thing he said in Ezekiel. I mean, he's done this over and over again. So the idea that somehow Israel is no longer relevant is just, as I say, baloney, not true. There are also three versions of this parable. Each of the synoptic gospels has this parable recorded, and there are slight differences among them. I don't know that they're terribly significant, but it's worth looking at all three because there's something slightly different in each one of them. So, for example, in Mark, which we read today, he says, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? It's like, come on, guys, shape up. Let's get this as if he's expecting them to understand it. In Matthew 13.10, when the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So you have differences in the three recordings of the same parable and and I'm not going to go through that in detail other than to throw it out to you and say you really ought to read them side by side because they're different information slightly. I mean the parable itself doesn't change but the surroundings of it does depending on what the writer heard. One more thing by way of background you've all heard this you have four types of soil the word is the word of God the soil is the human heart. And so if the human heart is properly prepared, the word takes root and produces a crop. If the heart is not properly prepared, the word is barren. Which takes you, by the way, to Isaiah 55. For the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and the bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So when Yeshua is giving the parable of the sower, his hearers who understand Hebrew scripture should have gone ding, 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 ding. We're back in Isaiah 55. In other words, he's talking in the same metaphor that Isaiah talks in Isaiah 55, and that would have been familiar, or should have been familiar to everybody who was listening to it. The idea that the word being seed, which, by the way, helps you understand why in Mark he says, come on, guys, pay attention. Don't you get this? Because he is using a metaphor that they should have all been familiar with. That's the reason for him slapping around a little bit in Mark. He doesn't in Matthew. 
So what I want to talk to you about in the context of the parables is agency. And I'm going to channel my inner Baptist, and I'm going to give you three things that alliterate. (laughs) I wasn't planning to do that, but it came out that way. So the question is, in each of the three soils that are a problem, who is the problem? In other words, what is the cause of the problem? So the first soil is the path, which is a road, which is a public place. You've got a road out there, it's a public place. Anybody can be traveling up and down the road. Who comes and takes the seed away? Birds or Satan? It's the birds in the parable itself, the explanation is Satan. So Satan is the problem there. So Satan is wandering around in public places seeking to steal the word of God. That's what he's saying there in the first vignette, which should take you, therefore, immediately to the book of Ephesians. And the reason it should take you to the book of Ephesians, there's two reasons, actually. One is, remember I said that the seven kingdom parables match up with the seven pastoral letters that Paul wrote match up with the seven letters to the seven churches. And what I asserted was Ephesians was the complementary letter of Paul to the parable of the sower. So let's go to Ephesians. Ephesians is kind of interesting. It's Paul's sort of, whoops, letter, because the letter ends at the end of chapter 3. He gives a terminus and he says, bless you and all that kind of stuff, adios. Then he starts up in chapter 4 with a completely different subject. It's like the Holy Spirit grabbed him by the stacking swivel and said, wait a minute, this letter's not done. This is what I want you to talk about. So I'm going to pick it up in Ephesians 4.17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. In other words, they are walking along the road and they don't understand. Remember, what's the thing that allows Satan to scoop up the seed on the path? They don't understand it. The seed that gets sown on the path, it specifically says that those people don't understand what they heard. And what Paul is saying here in Ephesians is they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Does a hard heart sound like pavement to you? So what Yeshua is saying in the first one is the agent, the one who is causing the word to be unfruitful is Satan. That's the first agency. So the second agency we have the seed that is sown in rocky soil where there's no depth of good soil. It's in rocky soil, there's a little bit of water, there's a little bit of soil, bright sunshine, the seed thinks, wow, here we go, and sprouts, but when the sun comes up, there's no depth, so it dries out and withers. The agent here is society, and what's happened is nobody has discipled the person So he doesn't have any depth of soil. He hears the word and it sounds good superficially, but because he doesn't have any depth, 
as soon as persecution arises for the sake of the word, he just scoots out from under it and goes somewhere else. The problem there is education, discipleship, civilization, whatever you want to call it. This person has not had the opportunity to prepare himself to hear the word. So he's just sort of wandering around out in nature. Somebody says the word to him. Wow, that's really cool. I like that. Ooh, yeah, forgiveness of my sins, all that kind of Wow, cool, good. But as soon as somebody comes after him and says, for example, what do you mean? Your religion doesn't believe in pick your sin. How can you believe in a religion that doesn't let you do that, whatever that may be? And there's lots of that. And so what he does is he sort of curls up and goes away because he's been shamed, mocked, persecuted because there is no depth to him. And the fact that there isn't any depth to him, at least as a young person, now, you know, by the time you're my age, if you don't have any depth, it's your problem. But when you're a young man, foolish, and you don't have any depth, that's the problem of the people who raised you. So the first agent is Satan. The second agent is society. Not having helped the guy prepare the soil so that there's some depth there, so that when the seed sprouts, it hangs in there. Third agent is self. So we've got Satan, society, now we have self. And the problem there is... He's not tending his garden. He's not tending his field. He's allowing weeds to grow up in his field. And so the seed gets sown, and it sprouts and germinates, and the soil is good. But I've got other things that are my priorities. There's other stuff I want to do. So I am not paying attention to the cultivation of the world. I'm really paying attention to what I want to do. And what I want to do is far more important than cultivating the Word of God within myself. So we have Satan, we have society, and we have self. Each one of those three will cause the Word of God to be unfruitful. And of course the fourth soil, it's got depth, it's tended, and so forth, and that brings forth the crop. So the idea here is, if you tend the Word of God it will bring forth a crop. And back at Isaiah 55, God says that he sends his word out and it does not come back void. But Yeshua is saying that the places where it is sown are sometimes not conducive to having it do what it was sent for, or what God hoped it would do when it was sent. So, if Isaiah says it does the purpose for which it was sent, and Yeshua is saying that in three types of soil it is unfruitful. How do you reconcile those two things? The way you reconcile it is, a phrase that Ray uses very often, is what's called constructive notice. In other words, the seed that was sown on the path, or sown among the rocks, or sown in the weedy field, is still something that the hearer is responsible for. If the hearer doesn't bring forth fruit, that's the hearer's problem, not God's problem. But the hearer has been given notice of what the Word of God is. God is not willing that any should perish. And one of the things about our sower here, I don't know about you, but I don't know many farmers that drive their seed drill across the road. 
with the hopper still going. I mean, seed's expensive. So if you're seeding your field and you've got to go across the road, you turn off the drill and go over the road and turn the drill back on and keep going, right? This sower doesn't. This sower is careless with sowing his seed. He sows it everywhere. Careless is actually correct because care is worry. He is not worried about where the seed lands. And in fact, I, I heard a Sunday preacher years and years and years ago. He had a, a shtick that he did. So he's got this bowl of water. And he's standing there and he sticks his hand in the water and he just scatters it across the audience. And he said, God is careless with his grace. In other words, he just flings it out there. The same with the seed here. God is careless with his word. He flings it out there. It's for everyone. Not like our frugal farmer that turns off the drill as he drives across the road. God doesn't do that. The word is available to everyone. Now, I'm going to talk about defective soils can be repaired. So let's go to Revelation. And I'm in Revelation 2. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the word of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, how does that relate to the parable of the sower? It's talking about the word of God. Ephesus was strong in the word. Ephesus understood the word of God. In fact, Ephesus was so strong and so zealous that they were able to get these false prophets who came through with a three-day pass and a briefcase, and they were able to say, you're teaching bad doctrine. They were zealous for the word. What was their problem? That they'd lost their first love. They had become cold. That's one of the problems with people who study the word a lot is we can become cold and we can become harsh and we can become uncaring and unfeeling because we look at people's actions and we compare them with the word of God which we know really well and almost nobody measures up mostly not us but that's another discussion so what Yeshua is saying to this church is hey you persevere Hey, you're putting up with a lot. You're maintaining the word. You are teaching the word. But what you're not doing is you are not connecting and discipling people. You are not helping people prepare their own soil. You are not helping people repair, repair and prepare, two different words. You are not helping them repair their soil. That's the thing that I have against you is you become cold. And I will suggest that that's a trap that this church is prey to. 
We love scripture. We love listening to intimate little details and stuff that nobody else knows. I mean, I can get you all's attention in two minutes. I tell you, I got something you haven't heard before. And you're all just, ooh, wow. That's who we are. And that's okay. But don't let it become to the point where you're not engaging with people who are on the road. Remember? Road is a public place. And you have people who are hearing the word out there, but they don't understand it. Let's go to Acts. Chapter 8, verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless somebody guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This was the Ethiopian eunuch. You know, he's traveling through the airport and he picks up a scroll of Isaiah to read on the chariot home. Right? And he's reading the thing and he doesn't understand it. And God picks Philip up from a successful ministry up north, plops him down there right in front of the Ethiopian eunuch and says, do you understand what you're reading? The guy says, no. (laughs) How am I going to understand this? Because he has no depth of soil. He hasn't been prepared for the word. He doesn't understand. And it takes somebody who does understand, you all, to help them understand and help them till up their soil so that the word in them bears fruit. Now, you folks have got the knowledge. You folks understand scripture. You love scripture. The question is, do you care enough about your neighbors to help them till up their soil? That's the question. And I'm sure the answer is yes. 